Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Third of September, Friday. The night's tide is flowing back into the mornings. Darkness drifts on the down of thistle and ragwort. Penny and I will soon be needing bat size, and each morning we walk out of the friendly darkness into the cold light and to the one tree that has become my pole star. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting under the September stars on still waters furrowed by a gentle northeasterly breeze. Well, the nights may be getting a bit longer and perhaps feeling a little bit darker, but there's always a place for you here. Welcome aboard, I'm glad you came. For most of this week, high pressure has been sitting on some pretty heavy sheets of cloud swabs and giving a rather autumnal and chilly damp feel to the days. The Met Office referred to it as an anticyclonic gloom a term I'd not heard for a long, long time. However, the wind dance has shifted and clouds are signalling the moving of frontal systems. And the Martins have been carnivaling their last British hurrahs before heading off to horizons painted vivid in my dreams. Godspeed, little ones. Safe travels until next year. For some reason that we're not quite sure of, the water level here has been really, really low, which has meant boating has become a little exciting. So far, touch wood, we've managed to avoid grounding, but uh, some of the boats have got into difficulties and one or two have been stuck for a little while. As I say, we're not quite sure why this is the case. It might be the extra traffic because of the bank holiday weekend. Although we've found actually that the canals have been quite quiet where we've been. And the another reason may be that one of the feeder reservoirs has had work on it. So they may have stopped the, the pumps working for a little while so that the water hasn't been replenished. But anyway, whatever the, the, the cause of it, it has uh, meant Quite exciting boating at times, uh, particularly on mooring or under bridges. For those who have been following the nighttime on Still Waters social media posts, either on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, you will know that we met up with our little swan family. It's always good to meet up with old friends, isn't it? And they certainly seem to be doing really well. I've also noticed that ducks are beginning to group again with flights of four or five or six being seen together, flying quite closely. And on the waters too, they're beginning to form and swim together in bigger groups. 
I'm not too sure whether it's just that they are remaining in their family groups, and so they're the younger, the fledglings, are now becoming indistinguishable from the adult ducks. But there is less squabbles, well, at least for ducks at any rate. And the old rivalries of the spring and summer seem to have given way to a, a feeling of collegiality of the shorter days and perhaps the oncoming winter. And the heron now is becoming quite a regular sight and one can get a little blasé about poking one's head out of the boat and coming eye to eye with a, a heron peering at you. And the hedgerows continue to hang heavy with fruit and it's definitely now blackberry season with a towpath full of small families clutching containers full of blackberries. And it's particularly lovely to see children and families, actually, even adults, apparently, who are tasting blackberries for the first time. I was watching the other day a young family tentatively pick one and checking whether it was not poisonous and then eating it and then being surprised by its taste. Small discoveries and leaps of courage that become so, so, so important. As I always say, I do love to hear from you and hear your ideas and your thoughts and any questions that you might have. And if you want to just take some time just to contact me either on Facebook Twitter or Instagram and the uh, contact details are below in the program notes or by contacting me by email at nighttimeonstillwaters at gmail.com and hello particularly to Chris Phipps and you mentioned how The Wind in the Willows was your most favourite book of all time and I can totally understand why and hello also from Facebook on to June Mann, Nancy Jean Armstrong Mark Stowe, and also, well, I remember Arlene, Arlene Misa Kettering. I'm hoping that you're still enjoying Temple Thurston's book, The Flower of Gloucester, and you might be interested to know that we stopped off for a night, well, for a day and a night at Lowsonford. It was a place that obviously captured Temple Thurston's heart and imagination. He noted that the locals and the working boatmen referred to it as Lonesome Ford, and he describes it as lying alone in a cup of the hills like a polished pebble in the deep pool of a twinkling brook. And right through the centre of the village runs the canal under an old red stone bridge with the low-tiled lockhouse just beside it. Well, they're all still there. And in fact, the lock house can be rented out as a holiday accommodation. And there are a couple there who are just sitting outside it in the sunshine and watching the boats locking up and locking down. Temple Thurston then goes on to say, You could well spend a summer in the village of Lowsonford and forget that the world is moving around about you. It is an event unparalleled almost in excitement when a barge comes through to Stratford. Then all the little boys and girls rush down the street to the old redstone bridge to watch it as it passes through the lock. The fat lockkeeper's wife wakes from her long months of somnolence, bestirs herself under the admiring eye of all the children, though she has nothing whatever to do. 
her big woolly dog, of such a breed as I have never seen before or since, rouses himself from the sun-warmed coping stones of the lock, and follows after her, with a sense of importance, half awake, watching her with his eyes wherever she goes. Oh, Lowson Ford, I can tell you is wide awake then, when a barge comes through the lock. But the barge goes on its way into the busy world. The smoke of its little chimney from the cabin fire trails round the corner, and, blue as it is, melts into the bluer air of distance. Then Lowson Ford turns on its side once more, and for many a month to come, sleeps like a baby in its cradle of the hills. If ever I need to sleep to wake again, I shall go and find my pillow there. As you can imagine, Lowson Ford's changed quite a bit since Temple Thurston's time, and certainly that the canals and their locks are a lot busier than the way he describes them. But the bridge is still there and the pub and the lock-keeper's cottage. And it was lovely just to be there and to stand on the bridge where he relates encountering that really poignant figure of the widower who had just lost his wife. I just want to say a quick hello to you, Olivia. Olivia Marty, on Instagram, you reminded me of childhood playing in the garden with the the orange balsam the balsam flower and the way that the the seeds just ping when you touch them and i can remember wendy and i having lots of fun in the garden just pinging the <laughs> balsam seeds and olivia said that in the states that the orange balsam is also called touch me not which is a, a great name for that plant Across from us on the far side of the canal, four beech trees stand at the water's edge. Green billows of new growth spring from their trunks near the ground, and roping serpentine roots plunge into the water, a haven for the timorous strutting moorhen, water speedwell, and the soft lilac mists of water mint and the glow of orange balsam lanterns by the water's edge. And over us arch the branches of the hawthorn, blushing a sunset glow dull red with berries. Further along there's a willow. Traditionally the Irish harp is made from willow, and with it comes a wonderful tale about an Irish king, Lowry Lingshot. And the story goes that Lowry Lingshot had horses' ears instead of human ones, and because of that he always wore his hair long. Well, one day a young man is ordered to trim the king's hair and discovers the truth, but is sworn to secrecy on the pain of death. However, Knowing such a devastating truth about the king is too much for the youth to bear. And so he goes out one night 
and whispers the truth of the king that Lowry Lingshaw has horse's ears to a willow. As time goes on, that willow grows and is cut down and is used to make a harp for the harpist of the royal court. And after the fashioning of the harp has been completed, it's brought to the royal court to be played before Lowry for its first playing. However, as the harpist began to play the tune, the only sound that the harp made was to cry out that Lowry Longshot has horse's ears. And the word of Lowry's secret then spreads the length and the breadth of the kingdom. Our hedgerows and patches of wild ground and disused places are filled with stories if we just listen to them. At the moment, if you look into the hedges, you'll see them smolder and blaze with the poisonous scarlet berries of the cuckoo pint or lords and ladies. Skewers like bright red corn on the cob, stained, some stories say, by the blood of Christ. Roy Vickery notes that there are tales in North Wales that suggest that the cuckoo pint or lords and the ladies grew at the foot of the cross and became spotted by the blood of the Saviour. Listen to the local names it's given. Angel and Devils. Bloody Fingers. Calves Foot. Cuckoo Spit. Devil's Bit. Dog's Dick. Jack in the Box. Lady's Slipper. Lamb in a Pulpit. Priest in a Pulpit. Snake's Food. Soldiers and Sailors. Sweetheart. Roy Vickery records that there's an association between this plant and St. Whitburger, particularly in the Cambridgeshire region. And he writes that the old fenmen of the last century, and this would be the 19th century. Sorry, if you can hear some noise in the background, it's Penny. She's suddenly found a chew that she's eating. The old fenmen of the last century held a traditional belief that when the nuns came over from Normandy to build a convent at Thetford, they brought with them the plant cuckoo pint. And the story goes on to describe how the monks from Ely came to steal the body of St. Whitburger from where she lay in East Deerham, also in Norfolk. And they then paused on their way back to rest at Brandon. And the story says how the nuns of Fetford then came down to the riverside and covered the saint's body with the flowers. And during the long journey down the little ooze of the barge bearing St. Whitburger, several of the lily flowers, or the cuckoo pint, fell into the river, where they threw out roots. And within an hour, they had covered the banks as far as Ely with a carpet of blooms, and more remarkable still, these flowers glowed radiantly at night. Now, there seems to be some elements of truth behind this story, as the pollen does seem to 
emit a faint light or a faint glow at dusk. And Vickery notes that when Irish labourers came to work in the fens during the famines, they refer to this plant as fairy lamps, and the Fenlightermen had long called them shiners. There's still magic to be found in our hedgerows. And in fact, if you go up from the towpath from here, there's a plant that grows, and as it dies back and its leaves drop, it leaves the most stunningly wonderful sight I've ever seen. Tiny seed bells hang tightly to thin bare stems, and it's as if the whole plant was sculpted from fire and glass, glowing red bronze and gold, and it catches my breath, particularly when the dew is on it. A plant made from light and fire, and whose tiny seed pods glister metallic and warm, even in the darkest days. It's a plant that belongs not here, but in the Mabinogion, in the, the myths of old. I don't know what it is. Well, actually, I say I don't know what it is. Actually, I have a strong inkling that I do, but I don't want to know what its name is. I feel no urge to go back to the books or to search the internet to try and find its name. For me, it's important that my hedgerows contain glorious wonders that have no name, that are just there for themselves without being pinned down by their family, by their species, by their genus and that by their being there can awaken in me something of the wonder of seeing something for the first time. I remember Richard maybe discussing, and I think it's his book, The Nature Cure, but I could be wrong, our obsession with names and the knowing of names and how our interaction with nature is based on our knowledge of its categories. Names are obviously important and useful and valuable things, but they can also act as barriers and make us look at things in a particular way. And I think maybe his point is right. More and more I'm aware of how knowledge like this directs us to encounter the world on our terms, forcing it into the little boxed categories that we have constructed and made for it. It's another way of domesticating the world around us. Tristan Gooley quite often makes the point that you don't have to know the name of something to be able to understand it. And He's making quite a simple point, but it's such a profound statement. He argues that there's no such thing as the right name for something in nature. Different cultures, different groups, different ethnicities, different localities might have a different name for that thing, but there's not one that's right and the others are wrong. 
I wonder how different our interaction with nature, our interaction and our understanding of the hedgerows would be if rather than looking at Aramaculata, we saw instead lords and ladies in their coach, or preacher in the pulpit, or adder's meat, or even associated it with a story that your grandmother told to you. I want my encounters with the world in which I live and the hedgerows not just to fill me intellectually, but to strike chords within me personally, to fire my imagination, to make me feel, to have that capacity to suddenly blaze into life. I want to have plants in my hedgerow that explode our Aristotelian and Linnaean classifications, that splinter the old taxonomies that fix things so critically and so precisely within their categories, that objectify the things that I can touch and smell and see, pin them like dead butterflies to the walls of my understanding. And by doing so, create such a yawning distance from me and my world. I need my hedgerows to be places where there is room for the Mabinogion, where there's room for the Hebrew prophets, for the fiery bush to once again blaze or the shaman's tales, where there's room for the flashes of wonder and the sudden blaze that takes your breath away and unseats me from my familiar world. Where a plant can grow that has no name but is still nonetheless wonderful. Where I don't encounter nature, but nature can encounter me, and I can listen to the willow song, and hear within it the truth behind power. That the great king's lowry longshack whoever he may be in our lives, has horses' ears. Letting something grow without a name goes against all our instincts as humans, but it helps us to throw off that myopia, that that short-sightedness or the cataracts, as John Moriarty calls them, of rational Cartesian Kantian thought to be able to experience as well as to know our world on its own terms. And in doing that once more, our world becomes richer and deeper and so full of those possibilities that can change our lives. And a world in which a young man can stop at a blackberry bush with his children and for the first time pluck a berry roll it around in his mouth and is surprised at its sweetness and can proclaim to his children, I'm like Bear Grylls. And for that moment he is. And their worlds pivot as they find an encounter in a new way, the world in which they find themselves. Possibly one of the most famous poems by the Welsh poet R.S. Thomas captures this so well. The Bright Field, 
by R.S. Thomas. I have seen the sun break through to illuminate a small field for a while, and gone my way and forgotten it. But that was the pearl of great price, the one field that had the treasure in it. I realize now that I must give all that I have to possess it. Life is not hurrying on to a receding future, nor hankering after an imagined past. It is the turning aside, like Moses, to the miracle of the lit bush, to a brightness that seemed as transitory as your youth once, but is the eternity that awaits you. And this is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a night and your days full of such wonder and beauty and enchantment. Good night. Temperature outside 16.1 degrees. Inside 20 degrees. Humidity 65%. Dew point 9 degrees. Wind direction east northeast. Wind strength 8 miles per hour. Barometric pressure 1026.8 steady. Cloud cover 76%. Cloud ceiling 2400 feet. Precipitation trace. Moon phase 18 degrees waning crescent. Day length 13 hours 32 minutes. Sunset 1951. Sky casting 621.